Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We wanted to let you know that Olin's first book, What to Do with Worry, is now available on Audible. You can also purchase physical copies where Christian books are sold. Now, here's Olin. Father, we don't want to just have a seminary class for credit. That's important, that's good, but that's not the most important. Uh, Thank you for the calling that you have put on our lives, at least for this season, uh, to be in ministry. And what an awesome task it is. What a heavy task it is. Who is sufficient for these things? We want to be as equipped and as spirit-filled as possible to be faithful messengers of your word to the people that you put in front of us. Whether that's a four or five person small group Bible study or whether it's a thousand people at a conference, Lord, we want to be a vessel that you pour your truth through. So would you align our hearts with you? Would you give us practical wisdom about how to be good teachers, good preachers, But Lord, mainly would you make us love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and therefore love your word and love your people and be able to deliver the word in the best way that they can hear it, that will help them, that will honor you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, how to write a sermon. And when I say that, I mean anything like I just said. It could be a small group Bible study. It could be preaching to the biggest conference you can even imagine. How to teach God's word. Okay. A lot of what I'm going to say I do think would be kind of authoritative, biblically, principally based. But some of what I'm going to give you today is more practical application. Okay, So I already mentioned some of this, but I'll just say it again. If if you weren't even taking this for credit and you just wanted to know from me, my experience, the best books to read about preaching, again, Andy Stanley just from Practical Oratory Skills, Communicating for Change, if you want more of an academic seminary level book, okay, we're not using it for this class this year, but it's a great one, is Christ-Centered Preaching by Brian Chappell. Very helpful book. Okay? Then Preaching by Tim Keller. Like I said, even if you bought the book just for the appendix and you never read the rest of it, I think it'll change your ministry probably. And then The Supremacy of God in Preaching by John Piper. You know, Piper's also just put out a couple of newer books that I'm totally forgetting the title of right now, but... Uh, reading the Bible Supernaturally, I think, is one of them. And there was a series of three. Uh, expository Exaltation, I think, is another one. And they are like gigantic stakes about how to study the Word and then how to teach the Word if you really want to go deep on that. So, first point okay, is choose a main text or a main topic. Now, it's not sinful to preach topical sermons. But I think even when you are teaching a topical sermon... It's ideal, it's not necessary, so this would be application, guys, okay? It's ideal, though, to have one main text. And that doesn't mean you can't call in secondary text to support that, but I think it's ideal if you have one main text. Now, that's not necessarily the right way in all the ways wrong. Sometimes I might have a three-point sermon, and every uh, point has a different text for the point. It makes sense. I just spoke at the Broadwoods Impact Weekend about a month ago. I did a sermon about godly friendship. And for each point, I had a different proverb. And they weren't like proverbs right next to each other. I was kind of going all around the book of Proverbs. So that's fine to do. But why do I say that most of the time I think it's best to take one text and teach from that? One thing, it just makes your preparation easier, right? 
if you just have one place that you can study and drill down deep and you're not having to flip all around. The second thing I would say is it will make your teaching safer. It's easier to stay faithful to the Word when you just got this one text in a sense you're anchoring your soul to it for that week. And it's like, I want to teach what this text says. So then you're like, well, what should my main point be? What's the main point of the text? You just keep going back to the text. Now, how do you do this? Let's say, okay, because I think a lot of times in college ministry, in uh, youth ministry, when we're asked to speak somewhere, people don't typically say, would you come and teach on Luke 15? Sometimes they might, but a lot of times what they say is, would you come teach on grace? Would you come teach on the Holy Spirit? Would you come teach on prayer? They typically give us a topic, right, that they want us to speak on, which is fine. But then this is what I would do. If there is a specific text that I'm the most familiar with about that topic, like the Holy Spirit, well, then that's where I want to start because I've already got time and energy put into that one specific place. Maybe it's, it's the one that I know the best, but then secondarily, maybe you're like, I don't know if there is a text on the Holy Spirit that I know the best. Well, then I don't want to say, well, just historically speaking, what is the text that seems to talk about the Holy Spirit the most? And maybe you'd want to go somewhere like Romans chapter 8. Okay, um, But then third, it could just be this. Is there a text that you just like the best? Right? Like if somebody asks you to speak on love, and you're like, you know what? I don't think I'm a very loving person. I don't know why they... Maybe they're trying to teach me something by asking me to teach on this. But I know 1 Corinthians 13 is a famous passage, and it's very powerful. I haven't studied it very much, but I like it. That's enough. Okay, That, that is a way. And obviously, pray about this in all things by prayer. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom. But part of what I'm saying is a lot of times those three ways, the text you know the best, the text you like the best, the text that you think speaks to the subject, those are some of the natural ways that the Holy Spirit can guide you to make the right decision about the text. Okay. The fourth one I would say is what text do you have the most material on? There have been a handful of times when I've been uh, asked to teach maybe about a certain parable. And as I start to look in the Bible, I realize maybe if the parable shows up in Matthew and Mark, maybe I've got 10 commentaries on Matthew at my house, but I've only got two on Mark. Well, I'm going to teach on the Matthew passage because I've just got more material. I'll be able to dig deeper into it. So that's the first thing. you got to choose your text, choose your topic. The second thing I would say is read the text in English several times. And this, this would be different than what some professors would tell you, and I'm not saying I'm necessarily right or wrong. This is my practical application. But I'd say start with the English text and then go to the original languages if you can. Right? If you've had Greek or Hebrew, if you have Bible works or Lagos or you know, different tools that you can go to the Greek and Hebrew, great. But here's the reason I'd say that. How many of you growing up in high school or in college maybe had, you know, you took a foreign language, you took Spanish, French, German, something like that? Okay. But show hands, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to think all through your, all the schooling you ever went to in your whole life. So go all the way back to like preschool, all the way to maybe your seminary. What's the most, like I could say, I had two years of Spanish in high school, and I had two years of Spanish in college, I think. So I could say, okay, I had four years of Spanish or four Spanish classes. Can anybody beat me that you had more languages? And it can't be like, well, I had a year of French, I had a year of German. Can anybody beat me four times of Spanish? Anybody beat me in a foreign language? I got five. Okay, who said that? Lucas. All right, what do you got five in, Lucas? Spanish. Okay, in Spanish. Anybody else? Anybody here? Okay. Technically, you were just... I mean, I'm bilingual. 
You're bilingual. So you speak Spanish and English both fluently. Okay, so we're going to come back to you. Lucas, would you say that you're fluent in Spanish? I went to Panama this summer and couldn't understand anything. Okay, he went to Panama this summer and couldn't understand anything, and I would have probably been right there with you, brother. So here's the point. I don't care if you've had three really hard semesters under D.A. Carson studying Greek. You're not fluent in Greek. You're fluent in English. And the people that you're preaching to, I promise you, they're not fluent in Greek. They're fluent in English, right? Now, Lewis, you're fluent in English and Spanish, right? So, if you can honestly say, yeah, no, I know Greek so well. There was a guy that used to be a PCA pastor up in Kentucky who was Greek. (laughs) He was fluent in Greek. He could just read the Greek Bible like you and I could read the English Bible. He could preach from the Greek Bible. That guy should start with the Greek. Make sense? Because he could even end with the Greek. If Lewis was trilingual and he could also speak Greek as well as he can speak English and Spanish, then by golly, he should start with the Greek. But that's not where most of us are living. And the English translations we have in front of us, if you have some of the best, guys, they've had some of the best people that have studied Greek and Hebrew for decades, and they really are fluent, and this is the translation they came up with. You're probably not going to do better. So start with the English. I like the New American Standard the best to study in. The, The Revised Standard Version is also one of the best, most literal kind of to study in. The ESV is maybe one of the best to teach from. A lot of times I'll study in NAS, and then I'll teach from the ESV. There's a lot of good translations out there, okay? And what I'd recommend is when you start with the English, use multiple different English versions. Look at the ESV. Look at the NAS. Look at the RSV because sometimes there will be words that are different, and that's important to notice because then you can say, ah, I need to dig deep on that Greek word because something's going on there because the translators are having a hard time figuring out the best way to put it in English. Does that make sense? And here's one little side note. I've done this before where I study. Let's just say this time I decided to study a lot in ESV. And there's one word I really want to focus on. And then I got in a hurry and I didn't happen to read the NAS before I got up there. But I decided to teach from the NAS just because that's the Bible I happened to have in my car. And I got up there to teach. And the word that I really want to focus on was in the ESV. It's not in the NAS. So that's just make sure that you look at the passage you're going to teach from the right translation. Because you can make a fool of yourself. Trust me, I've done it. Okay? Start with the English and then go to the original languages. And typically, unless you're teaching a very, very short passage, you're not going to have the time to go into all the different words in Greek and Hebrew. So you want to go into the most important words of the text. Maybe look, where has that word been used in other places, the definition of that word, those type of things. Um, Point three. I mean, we're saying a lot here, okay, but find the repeated words or the themes. What are the words or the themes that are repeated? And again, I like to do this in English. And then a lot of times I'll go and do the same thing in the Hebrew or the Greek. Because sometimes there might be a word that's being used repetitively in the original language. But because of the way it's translated, you can't notice it in English. Does that make sense? So try to find the repetitive words and themes in both languages. <clears throat> Fourth, study the keywords. Okay, the repeated ones the ones that seem the most important in the original language, like I said, and do cross-references. Use a concordance, 
Okay? And especially, sometimes you may, let's say you're studying something in the Gospel of Luke, and you're looking at a certain word, and you say, where else is this word used in the New Testament? And it comes up like 150 times. You're like, good gracious, that's overwhelming. I can't look at all those. Well, then what I'd do is I'd say, where else is just Luke? Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts. I'd want to say, where does Luke use this word? Because that's really interesting. Every once in a while, you'll come across words that Luke might tend to use in a slightly different way than John. Right? Not in a contradictory way, but just a different emphasis, a different nuance. Study the words. Study a good, at least one, and I'd say ideally more than one, study a good commentary on every verse of the text if you can. If you don't have enough time, again, I'm trying to make this realistic, practical, real world for y'all. If you don't have enough time, read through the text, and some of the verses in the text you may say, I feel like I totally understand that verse. I'm not saying you're an expert, but you're like, the verse just seems to make total sense. And then you may get to verse 2, and you may say, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand this verse. I don't understand why this phrase is used. Okay, maybe you don't go to the commentary for verse 1, but you do go to the commentary for verse 2. Does it make sense? I mean, a lot of times I'll just read the passage. What verses do I feel like I have the most questions on? Let me pull up the commentaries and read those. Guys, for me, I love to have physical, hardback, commentaries, not the library. I want to buy my own because then I can mark them up because a lot of times you're going to come back to the same passages and you're like, oh yeah, I highlighted this. Let me go read it again and maybe in some great insight that you've forgotten. So I've already mentioned read in multiple different English texts. Uh, Point seven, read or listen to someone else preaching on the text if possible. Now, here I'd say be very careful. If you find in your heart that you have a tendency to just copy other people, that's, that's not ideal. That's not sinful. I have heard people preach before, <clears throat> old and young, who will get up and they'll just say, hey, i got to be honest. Most of the content that I'm about to deliver you this morning, I got from John Piper because I heard a great sermon from him on it and I can't do much better than him. So I basically am just going to give you John Piper's sermon. Listen, if you're honest about it up front, that's fine. That there's humility there. If that's what you do regularly, I love you. God hadn't called you to preach. Go do something else, right? Because there ought to be a sense of, no, no, I want to study this text. I want to wrestle with this text. I want to glean the goods for myself. So give credit where credit is due when people are, when you're quoting people and stuff. But if you have a tendency to try to just copy somebody else, what... Here's what I'd say, and, and I've done this a lot. I'll do all my prep work and have the sermon written, and then maybe I'll go listen to somebody else's sermon about it afterwards so that it doesn't influence me too much. Okay, the eighth thing, outline the passage, trying to find three main points that arise from and flow with the text that you can build the sermon around. Don't spend too much time on your outline. Most people are not even going to remember your outline. Most of the time, an outline is not going to change somebody's life. The outline is more about just giving them some kind of like mental pegs to hang their hat on while you're teaching to kind of follow the flow of the logic. Don't stress about the outline. And it doesn't have to be three points. You can have two points. You can have four. I think I'm going to have 15 today. I would not typically recommend that. Okay? 
don't stress about the outline. I mean, technically, I don't even really have an outline for this. I'm just giving you 15 points. I do think this is really important. And I first heard it from Andy Stanley, but other people like Tim Keller repeat it, and it's just it's so wise. Determine one main point you want people to walk away with. And guys, this is more and more important, and y'all know this, especially working with young people. People's attention spans are terrible. And a lot of times their memory for this kind of stuff is, is not great. And so you got to think, if they only walk away, and I'd say it needs to be one sentence, ideally. I'd say, honestly, it needs to be one line in the Word doc, right? Not like a paragraph-long sentence, like a line. If they only walk away remembering something, what will it be? And then, in a sense, everything in the sermon is going to be like spokes in a wheel going back to that center. Okay, um, less is more. Somebody once said, and this was so helpful, a fog in the pulpit is a cloud in the pew. That, that quote has helped me a lot. If I'm not 100% clear on it, if I'm a little foggy, the people out there listening, they're going to be real hazy. Does that make sense? So I've got to be crystal clear. And that's one of the reasons less is more. Is because I might be teaching something and I'm studying this passage and I don't fully understand everything in the passage. Great, then don't teach everything. Teach the pieces that you're razor sharp clear on. George Bernard Shaw said this, The greatest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. I mean, just think about in personal one-to-one relationships. Have you ever had a time with another human being? Could be another male friend, but highly likely might be a female friend. And you communicated something, and you felt like it was crystal clear. We're on the same page. And then like maybe a week or two later, you came back to that same conversation. And he or she said, well, you said this. And you're like, I did not say that. Well, that's what I heard you say. Well, that's not what I meant to say. I mean, we we can miss each other so much in just one-to-one communication. How much more so can it happen when you're teaching, you know, 10 or 20 people? So... Somebody did this experiment, and I can't remember who. This, is, this was a live, like some university did research, where they asked people, they, they told them, like, like they would whisper in their ear. I think I'm going to actually do a little experiment here with you guys, okay? They would whisper in their ear a well-known musical tune. And then what the person would do is he would have to, with his hand, kind of tap out the beat, the tune, to the song and try to communicate it to everybody and then see how many people understood the song that he was doing. Does that make sense? Do you understand the experiment? All right, we're actually going to do it here for a second. So turn up your volume on Zoom, make sure you can hear me, okay? I am going to kind of, with my hand, play out a very well-known tune, and we're going to see if anybody gets it right, okay? All right, anybody want to take a guess? Okay, you couldn't hear me? That, that uh-huh. makes the point. You may take a guess just for fun. It was happy birthday to you, right? Everybody's heard that song. Now, now here's the point. When they did this experiment at the university, they would give people different songs, they'd tap it out, and they'd ask the person, how many people do you think are going to get it? And they'd say, I think about 50%. I think half the class is going to get it. Actually, how many people actually got it? I think it was 2%. <laughs> Here's my point. 
There can be times where we, we've been praying, reading, studying. We're like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. And then we go to try to explain it to people, and they don't get it. And, and the best thing that will help you with this one, guys, is get married and have some kids. Because when your five-year-old says, so, Dad, how does this whole trinity, God and Jesus, are the same, but they're different? Then you start to understand how much you really understand your theology, right? Is can you explain it to somebody that doesn't have all these uh, theological boxes you might have, and they're not afraid to tell you, yeah, that didn't make sense to me, Dad. Okay, so we need to make things simple for people. Ten, tenth point, find a natural pointer to Christ and the gospel in the text. Now, this, this one is... Everything I've given you up until this point, I would say, is application. So technically, you could walk away from today's lecture, you could walk away from today's class and say, uh, maybe I like some of the stuff Owen said, some of the other stuff I don't like, I don't agree with, and that's fine. For this one, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This would be principle. <clears throat> Luke chapter 24, and let's start in verse 26. And some of y'all may be wondering about the order that I'm going through. It's like, well, why didn't you start with this point, Olin, or why didn't you finish with this point? My order today, really what I'm doing is I'm walking you through logically kind of how I approach, right? Like if Joseph came up to me right after this class and said, Olin, we want you to come speak to the youth group next Wednesday night on blank. I'm just walking you through the process that my mind would start walking through. I'm going to read it in English, right? I'm going to find the repeated words. Then I'm going to try to find the main point. I'm just walking you through that. So at this point, I would say I've got to find a natural pointer to Christ and the gospel in the text. Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, start in verse 25. And he, this is the Lord Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he's speaking of the Old Testament because the New Testament is not written yet. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's a Jewish way to talk about the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the Old Testament points towards Christ and the gospel. The four Gospels are Christ and the Gospel taking place. And then the rest of the New Testament points back to and explains Christ and the Gospel. Skip down to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's another, you know, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That's another way to talk about the Old Testament scripture. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the New Testament points to Jesus. Wherever you're studying, find a natural pointer to Jesus. Don't, don't, don't settle for a weird way, right? If you're teaching about Rahab, the prostitute, coming to faith, and she hung out a red uh, scarf, you know, to show where her apartment was on the city wall so they wouldn't kill her and her family. Well, red is the symbol of the blood of Jesus. Don't do stuff like that. But Charles Spurgeon did say this. Charles Spurgeon had a lot of great lines about this. He said, I'd rather find Christ where he wasn't than miss him where he was. 
So when in doubt, find Christ there. And he said, you know, if you go to England, even still today, no matter what little hamlet or village you're in, there's always a road somewhere that goes to London. Because London's the center of England, and Christ is the center of the Bible. Find a natural way. And guys, this, this is where some of your best, most fruitful study will come. And when you feel like you're beating your head against the rock and you can't find it and you can't see it, just pray Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Lord Jesus, sitting on your throne in heaven, would you open my mind right now to understand the Scriptures? Because I'm having a hard time. Martin Luther has this great quote where I think he was studying Ecclesiastes. And he's like, basically, I'm beating on Solomon. And he's not giving way yet, but he will give way. And that, sometimes that's what our study and meditation and prayer and wrestlings look like. It's like, I am mentally beating on this passage until it opens up to me. And I would say in your sermon, you don't have to do it this way. So this is back to application, not principle. I like to end focused on Christ. That means you can't talk about Christ earlier in the passage. But one of the things that I think Kathy Keller said about Tim Keller's preaching early in his life when he was still in Hopewell, Virginia, is she said it doesn't happen every week, but she said it's like there are weeks where it's like everybody's taking notes. They're learning. You're so smart, right? I mean, y'all have heard Tim Keller preach before. There's all these insights. They're taking notes. She said, but by the end of the sermon, it's like they put their pencils down. They're not taking notes anymore. They're worshiping. And haven't you had that experience before in a sermon? It's like, this is good. This is insightful. I like this. I'm learning. And then at some point, it's like your heart gets involved. And you're like, this is better than learning. It's not less than learning, but it's deeper. It's more fulfilling. It's more enriching. And so I think if we can end on the high point of worship, that's important. Because that's where people really get changed, guys, is when you start to worship the truth, not just to know the truth. I'll come back to that in a minute. Point 11, ideally include a good introduction, a good example, a good illustration, a good application, and a good conclusion. Uh, I just said a lot there. Yeah, an introduction, an example, an illustration, an application, and a conclusion. And if you think that's too much, okay, example, illustration, application, at least have one of those. But, but here's what I mean. A good, a good introduction and conclusion. Let's talk about that first. In some sense, a good preacher or teacher is like a pilot. What really matters is the takeoff and the landing. You can kind of put it on autopilot in the middle, right? But if you don't take off well and land well, people die. And so you, and guys, I'll be honest, this is one of the places that I'm the weakest. Because I'm just excited about, let's get into the text, let's start teaching. So a lot of times I'm just like, open to Luke chapter 11. And we're going to talk about prayer today. That's my introduction. Now, if you're with a group of people that they already know you and like you and trust you, you can get away with that. If you're not, you've you got to have something catchy. And listen, please hear me. I don't, again, I'm not saying gimmicks are always sinful. I don't think they're best. Well, let me tell you, I, I knew a preacher that what he used to do is he kind of start, start off with a funny ha-ha story. But it really didn't connect to the sermon. And then he'd go into the sermon. But you know, statistics will show you start off with a funny ha-ha story or maybe even a, a human interest story that doesn't naturally connect to the sermon. It actually makes people listen to you less. They like the story, but they don't really care what you're going to teach about. So it's fine to start off with something funny or interesting if it directly connects to the sermon. 
When, when I do take enough time to think about an introduction, what I usually like to do is start off with a question. I got to teach this week on Psalm chapter 20, and it's about praying for the king before he goes out to battle. And it, I think one of the, the first verse says, oh, oh Lord, hear us in the day of trouble. So I'm going to start and say, hey, everybody, turn to Psalm 20. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What's the biggest trouble you're facing in your life right now? Or if you think, I don't really feel like everything's going great for me right now. I don't have any trouble, okay? Think back in the past. What's the hardest trouble you've ever faced in your life? This passage is going to show us how we should pray in times like that. It doesn't have to be something great, but something to hook them. Introduction's important. The conclusion's important. I've already said, I think the best way to do your conclusion is where you show them naturally how the text points to Christ. Hopefully, you leave them worshiping. But... An example, an illustration, application. Okay, having good organization, three points, we've already talked about this. Think about this, guys. The truth is always powerful. The truth is always effective. But organized truth is more like a sharpened sword compared to the dullness of an unorganized sermon. Sometimes when we give unorganized sermons, and a lot of us in our youth do that because we're just excited and we have like 17 different points and they don't necessarily connect. And we just like, here's my favorite verses. It's a little bit like shooting at somebody with a shotgun with some kind of bird shot in there. You might wound them. You might nick them. They might be like, oh, that was that one random pellet thought that actually was helpful. But the rest of it's just going to be like scattershot. The more your sermon can be like a laser point scalpel coming into their heart to do surgery in one specific place, it'll be more powerful. The word alone changes lives. But oftentimes, guys, it's going to take illustrations and stories and examples to help them understand the word. I mean, this might be a fun exercise for us to do one week. If you think about some of the sermons that you've heard in your life that have the most helped you, I bet if you think long enough, I bet you there was some type of illustration or metaphor, or personal example that actually brought the word home and made it make more sense to you so that you could actually go apply it in your life. Does that make sense? So this is very important. Spend the time to at least give them an example, a story. It may be an example from your life. It may be an example from literature, sometimes a metaphor. But even just think about what I said about the airplane. I, I bet. And listen, you know what? I stole that from somebody else. I heard Tim Elmore say that in a communication class. But it stuck with me. Right? And I bet it will stick with you. It's better than just saying, it's important to have a good introduction. It's important to have a good conclusion. It's like, be like a pilot. You could kill people if you don't pay attention to the landing and the takeoff. Charles Spurgeon said, what we're doing, we're feeding people. But you don't want to just throw bread at them. Slice the bread up. Put some honey on it. Make it appetizing to them. Serve it up to them. I mean, think about how a mama bird chews up the food in its own mouth and then regurgitates it into the little baby bird's mouth. That may be a gross illustration, but she's doing everything she can to help the little baby bird be able to digest it. And that's the way. Sometimes we might have spent 20 hours in a nine-verse passage that we're going to teach. And in a sense, these people are only getting to spend 30 minutes in those same nine verses, right? So I've got to go the extra mile to make it very easy for them to hear and digest quickly. 
Some of my best personal insights into scriptures have come through an illustration. It's like it helps illumine. So go the extra mile, do the work there. Point 12. Write the sermon out like you'd actually say it. Once again, this is, this is practical application, and a lot of people would disagree with this. And let me just say this. I think a lot of this has to do with your personality. But I like to write out the sermon like I'm actually going to say it. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. It may have been Winston Churchill that said there needs to be a balance between uh, scripting it and then winging it. But what I like to do is I write it out almost exactly like I'm going to say it. And then a lot of times, once I get up there, I won't even look at my notes, except maybe once or twice when I want to read a quote. But one of the reasons that I like to write it out is because if the sermon goes well, it's highly likely that six months later somebody's going to be hey, you remember that sermon you taught on manhood or something? Can you come here and teach it again? I don't want to have to do all the work again. I want to be able to just print off my notes. And then I, you know, I, I stole this from somebody. Think about this illustration. If you got a good old sermon that was good six months ago, you just print it back off, put it in the microwave of prayer, kind of pray over it again, and warm it up and serve it again, okay? It's like the cold pizza from last night. You put it in the microwave long enough or the air fryer or whatever, and it'll taste good all over again. 13, try to communicate as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And what do I really mean by that? Be sympathetic. John Maxwell said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we've all experienced that. If somebody's giving us truth, but they seem to be doing it in a little bit of angry, condescending, look-down-their-nose, self-righteous, arrogant way, I don't care how godly you are, it's harder to hear it from that person, is it not? But if the person seems to come across like a fellow struggler that really loves you, that really understands you, I mean, what's one of the most glorious things about the Lord Jesus Christ is that He's a sympathetic high priest who's been tempted in every way as we are. It's easier to hear truth, in a sense, from Him. Winston Churchill did say this, in preparing, you start caring. So there ought to be a sense, when I'm reading the text and I'm studying, I'm not doing it abstractly. I don't want to do it like a seminary professor just trying to figure out, well, I want to make sure I cover everything in the text. I want to be thinking about the congregation, the group that I'm actually going to be speaking to. What do they need to hear? Why is this important for them? How could this help them? How could this change their life? And guys, one of the best ways to do this is share some of your own personal struggles. You don't have to do that every week. Is there a place for prudence? Yes, don't share too much. Okay. You just had a big fight with your wife on the way to church. Probably don't tell everybody about that. She won't appreciate it. But I would say most Western evangelicals tend to err way too much on the side of being prudent all the time. And the way it comes across is we end up putting our best foot forward, which is really a false foot. And it's hard for people to identify with because we look like the hero of the story. And there ought to be a sense, no, no, I'm not the hero of the story. I'm just a little messenger boy. But I, just like the text, am pointing to the true hero of the story, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Steve Jobs gave the graduation speech in 2005 at Stanford. Any of y'all ever heard that speech or read it or listened to it? 15 minutes. You can go get it online. Easy. Steve Jobs. I mean, top of his game. As far as the tech world, as far as the business world, all these Stanford graduates. And he got up and he said, I'm going to tell you three stories. And you know what he talked about? He talked about the fact I never graduated college. 
I got fired from the company I started, and I've got cancer and I'm going to die. Now, pretty sure Steve Jobs wasn't a Christian, but those are some genius ways to come into a graduation speech and say, hey, in one sense, I'm the hero that all you guys want to be one day, but let me share my weakness with you. Let me share my pain. Let me share my suffering. And that's why that means most, most graduation speeches you never think of again. They're boring. But people still remember that one. Watch it. Okay. When FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, died, and I think it was probably in Washington, D.C., his casket was going down uh, the street, down the mall, and there was one man in the crowd that literally just fell on the ground weeping. And another man was like, I guess... You must have known the president. And he said, I didn't know him, but he knew me. And what he meant by that was, because FDR was famous for doing these fireside chats over the radio with the whole country, this man was like, I never met the guy, but when he spoke, I felt like he knew me. He understood me. He spoke to my heart. And guys, that's the way we want to communicate with people. And the main thing we can identify with, hey, I'm a fellow struggler. I'm a fellow sinner. I'm a fellow beggar. Now, point 14, back to principle, okay? Pray over it. The whole time be praying over it. What should you specifically be praying? I already showed you in Luke uh, 24, 45, that God would open your mind to the Scripture. But everybody flip really quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. <clears throat> We're almost done here. 1 Corinthians chapter 24, verse 45, excuse me, that didn't exist. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Look at verse 24 that comes before. If all prophesy, so this is like, here's a prophesy in the New Testament would mainly mean preach. There's a congregation where everybody can preach, and an unbeliever, an outsider enters. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secret of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what you want people to feel like is happening to them. When I listen to this guy teach the Word of God, it's like the secrets of my heart are being disclosed. And I'm convicted. But it's not a kind of conviction that leads to condemnation that I want to run away. I want to fall down and worship God. Because he's a savior who'll forgive me. So pray. Pray for this. Pray for sanctification in the moment to happen. Now listen to this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is incredible. The first and primary object of preaching is to produce an impression. It is the impression at the time that matters. Even more than what you can remember subsequently. Now just pause, guys. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a genius you're going to get to read one of his sermons, okay? But I mean, he, was a, he was a doctor. Well on his way to maybe becoming like the doctor of the king in England before he ended up becoming a preacher. So he's a super smart guy. And when you read his sermons, super intelligent insights. But notice what he's saying. It's more important is the impression that people feel in the moment, even in the truth they can remember later, okay? And then he's going to quote another genius, Edwards, talking about Jonathan Edwards, in my opinion, has the true notion of preaching. It is not primarily to impart information. Okay? 
Yes, we're imparting information, but that's not the primary goal. And while the listeners are taking notes, you may be missing something of the impact of the Spirit. As preachers, we must not forget this. We are not merely imparters of information. We should tell our people to read certain books themselves and get information there. The business of preaching is to make such knowledge live. And what some people said about Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching is that it was truth on fire. And that's what we want to give people. Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. How do people get saved? They hear the words about Christ. They hear the words of Christ. And God just supernaturally creates faith in the heart. But how do people get sanctified? How do people grow up in the faith? They hear the words about Christ. They hear the words of Christ. And their faith grows and it increases. Luke chapter 24, verse 32. Here's another verse to pray for yourself. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Let's pray that people's hearts would burn with the truth while we're teaching. Okay? You go through the mind to get through the heart. Don't skip the mind, but don't stop at the mind. Pray that God will do the supernatural work to let you speak the truth to their heart. Somebody else, I don't remember who, said, Preaching is truth poured through personality. Be yourself. Be the man that God has made you to be. And let the truth come through your personality. And if you tend to be funny and tell jokes, great. Tell funny and tell jokes. If you tend to be a little more serious and intense, fine. Be that way. God made you the way you are. Just be a sanctified version of yourself and let the truth flow through you. Fifteenth, last point. Make sure that your own heart is touched and experiencing the truth. Okay. John Owen, we must commune with God in the doctrine that we contend for. The point is, before I stand up and preach to others, I want to make sure I've experienced God. Maybe not fully, but at least I've tasted a little bit of His goodness in the text. So, lots of practical application. I think I've really only given you three principles today, which would be point 14, point 15, and point 10. Let me just clarify those, okay? I'm going backwards. Make sure your own heart is touched and experiencing the truth. Make sure you pray over it. And make sure you point to Christ. And maybe a fourth principle that ought to be obvious in all this is make sure you're faithful to the text. Exposit the text. Teach what the text says. Do exegesis. Pull truth out of the text. Don't do eisegesis where you put truth into the text. Let me pray. Father, as we said at the beginning, who is sufficient for these things, would you make us each live up to our own unique potential in Christ? Not try to be somebody that we're not. None of us is going to be the next Charles Spurgeon. Just make us faithful to be the unique man, teacher, preacher that you want us to be. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.